0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, we turn to you this morning, and we ask that you in your mercy would take my words and take your word in scripture and allow it to be a word of encouragement for us this morning, according to your Son. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Our lesson today, our first lesson from the prophet Joel, picks up right there in the middle of what is actually an agricultural crisis. You see, a plague of locusts is on its way, headed directly to the farms and the cities of the people of Israel. In verse 1, there's a watchman who blows a horn to warn the people of the devastation that comes. And locusts, as they do, will feast on every green plant. So this means there will be no harvest that year, no food stored up for the winter, nothing to eat or drink until the next harvest. The prophet Joel likens the swarm of locusts to an invading army. He understands them to be God's judgment upon Israel for their sins. We know from scripture that locusts were one of the ten plagues that the Lord inflicted uh, upon the people of, of Egypt when the Pharaoh would not release the people of Israel from slavery. And so here we see that the God of the Exodus is at work again, except now his own people are on the receiving end of his judgment. And so Joel calls the whole people of Israel to repent from um, every age, from the babies all the way up to the elderly. Even the brides and the bridegrooms are not exempt from this public fast and this public sign of repentance. Well, this plague gets associated with God's judgment, not just because he's the one who sends it or allows it to happen to his people, but also because this army of locusts will bring famine. And famine, of course, leads to death. Uh, Death is the natural consequence for sin, mentioned at the very beginning, at the very beginning of all things, after the sin of Adam and Eve. The man formed from dust, Adam, would be returned to dust. Death uh, is inevitable for each one of us, and death brings the final judgment, uh, where we meet our maker face to face. For this reason, the prophets understood a catastrophe like locusts to be a sign of the day of the Lord. Throughout all the Old Testament, we hear the phrase the day of the Lord, because it, and it speaks to a fixed point in time when God would call all of his people to account for their covenantal failures. Where rebellion flourished, prophets announced God's imminent coming to lay bare the secrets of hearts. And so though events like this locust plague in Joel don't bring about the actual ultimate end of the world, uh, they brought such devastation, uh, such a scale of suffering, that it felt in the moment like it was the end of the world. There will be that ultimate day of the Lord on the last day when Jesus returns and the dead are raised and we are judged. Every human being that has ever lived will be judged based either on how we lived our lives or based on whether our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And we hear that in Revelation 20. And so for the ancient people of Israel, in the midst of their impending agricultural doom, Joel announces the coming of the day of the Lord because he is going to shake up the complacent, those who are proud in their own strength. He longs for them to fall upon the mercy of God. For us, it's probably not a plague of locusts. But the thing that throws us on our feet or um, or throws us on our knees, gets us off our feet and throws us on our knees or sends us running into the arms of God will also be a thing that feels like the end of the world. We might feel this way, for example, when we have to put a parent on hospice and we come to grips with mortality or when we might suddenly lose our job unexpectedly and have to find a way of of providing for our family. We will feel like it's the end of the world when we have a brush with death and we have to have life-saving emergency surgery to save our lives we'll feel uh, this uh, this end of the world experience when we see an innocent child suffering from a severe illness or a a lifelong disability we'll feel this way if we happen to get that bad diagnosis from the doctor the c-word whenever we hear the c-word we think of our mortality We feel that way also. Um, We feel that judgment that day of the Lord when we're drowning under depression after something terrible that we said or did. All of these things, we can identify them in our lives as those things that cause us to run to God, to fall upon the mercy of the Lord. Anything that reminds us of our death, anything that reminds us of the fact that we will one day stand before our God who sees and knows everything, Any one of those things could be our own personal day of the Lord that reduces us to dust, that reminds us that we are dust, that shows us the truth about ourselves by showing us our sin. Yeah, we we know we're sinful. We know this. We're here today because we know we're sinful. We're disobedient. We do the things that we know we ought not to do. And we don't do the things that we know that we ought to do. But sin is so much more than sin's. Do you hear that difference? Sin is a disease and not just the symptoms of the disease. More than our actions, our attitudes display a subtle disregard for God. We have the arrogance to think that we don't need God every moment of every day of our lives. We operate as if we are in control. We're the center of the universe. And we buy into that false truth, that false illusion that we have control over our own destiny. And I find that this illusion of control is something that's perpetuated by a kind of check-the-box spirituality, uh, an approach to faith that shows up a lot, unfortunately, on this particular day of the year. A few years back, I saw a church advertising for their Ash Wednesday service by putting up signs that said, Got Ashes. It was great advertising, if you think back to that Got Milk campaign a little while back. Well, the whole idea was that ministers of the church would would do whatever it took to provide ashes to go anyone, parishioners or anyone else, could receive ashes on their forehead by driving into the parking lot of the church, staying in their car, and allowing the minister to mark their forehead through the window on the driver's side. And so maybe people who were receiving this, who wanted this, maybe they wanted to show others at work when they got to work that they'd been to church that morning, Um, although, you know, they hadn't really stepped inside the church to be technical. If our faith If our religious life is about making sure that we do the kinds of things that we think we're supposed to do um, to be in relationship with God, whether good things, but if we think we need to be in church every Sunday, we need to pray and read our Bible every day um, just so that we can be in relationship with God, that it's on us to do those things, otherwise there's nothing. If that's what we think, then we're in big trouble because that kind of approach... um, is is false. If we're honest, in reality, when we make those so-called goals, um, those so-called good deeds uh, happen, it looks more like checking the box. And it looks um, like a very half-hearted checking the box. Maybe church every Sunday, but we'll settle for church once a month. Check. I Check the box. Good. Or reading my Bible every day, but why don't I just stop by the Bible app for five minutes for the verse of the day? Check. I'll check the box. Done it. Um, I must be good. Remembering to pray when we need something from God, but not uh, praying simply because God's there hearing us at every moment of every day and deserves our praise and our thanksgiving. Check, check, check. We have our list and we accomplish it. Well, if that is our approach, then we are indeed in big trouble because if we want God to measure up our good deeds and weigh them against our misdeeds, we will always come up short. If we think that we can do something In our own strength to turn God's judgment into mercy. We're deluding ourselves. This mindset is ultimately not about God, but rather it's about ourselves. It's about what we can do, about how we can manipulate God into forgiving us. Checking the box spiritually leaves me in the in control, or at least in the illusion of control. It leaves me in my sin. One Lent, about 15 years ago, the Lord um, disabused me of my illusion of control. He likes to do this a lot, which is good. I need it. And I have, because I have a sweet tooth, uh, I wanted to feel my need for God during Lent. And so I gave up sweets, hoping that if I didn't have the option of eating my feelings, then I would recognize those moments when I especially needed God, um, when I needed him, uh, which was all the time, um, but that I would turn to him in those moments without my crutch, my idol. Well, so I, I, I had given up chocolate in college one time and for Lent. And I found, though, that when I was offered a brownie after dinner, I, I would piously say, no, I've given that up for Lent. And so it was really counterproductive because while my my desire for sweets was being curbed, my pride had full sway. So again, then when I was in my 20s a few years later in New York City, I, was, uh, I felt called again to give up sweets, um, all sweets, not just chocolate, but all Everything, down even to the sugar in my coffee. No sugar, nothing sweet, not at all. Because I wanted to taste the sweetness of the Lord. But, you know, as I was prayerfully considering that resolution and praying about it, the Lord cut me short. <laughs> he said, you want a rule? I'll give you a rule. And so he convicted me about my pride. And he said, well, you can't tell anyone that you gave what you gave up. And if you're in public, not only that, but I want you to eat the sweet. If you're in public and someone offers you a brownie, you better take it <laughs> because I want you to know just how sweet you are. You can, you can fast on your own, but in public, say yes. And so there I was on Ash Wednesday. I'd fasted that morning, and I showed up at at a new job. I was nannying during those days while I also um, was taking acting classes and auditioning for things. And so it was a new family that had hired me to watch their children, and I walked in the door of this Upper West Side apartment that I'd never been to, and I walked in the door, and the mother of these children wanted to get to know me over a warm chocolate croissant and a mocha cappuccino. (laughs) And I just had the. It was like the Lord was saying, "You think you're in control, but guess what? I'm in control." I walked away astounded at the sweetness of the Lord. He was showing me He was the one holding our relationship, and not me. As Joel prophesied in verse 13, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And later on in chapter 2 beyond our passage in verse 25, after Israel's judgment ceases, once the locusts have gone, the Lord promises, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So again, the Lord's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But repentance is not something that we are in control of. Repentance is not something that we do on one day of the year like today or for five minutes during the prayer of confession in church on Sunday. Simply marking our forehead with ashes does not guarantee the kind of inner repentance that Joel calls for when he says, rend your heart and not your garments. It doesn't secure the kind of clean heart or right spirit that David talks about in Psalm 51. No, repentance is not something that we do. It is a response to something that God does. Repentance, turning, returning to God. Rather than it being something we would do, I would say it's more like running for shelter when you hear the tornado siren. We all know about tornadoes. We all know about the tornadoes that tore through our state just on Sunday. We've read the articles, I'm sure you have, about the 23 deaths in Lee County, all within a two-mile radius. We mourn. We grieve for those people. We know there are people still missing. We know the recovery is just beginning. And some of us know personally about the kind of devastating property damage that a tornado brings. Others of us, like me, just gawk in woeful awe awe, at the photos posted online. The coroner of Lee County said, we're talking about 170 mile an hour winds. We're talking about winds strong enough to drive a pine needle through a two-by-four. Those winds don't show any favoritism. Young and old alike, a six-year-old and an 86-year-old. The just judgment of God is as devastating as a tornado coming right for us. And the moments of suffering that we experience in this life, they feel like warning sirens, telling us that this world is not all that it should be. And we, because of our sin, are not all that we should be. And there will be a reckoning. And yet, in Jesus Christ, we have our perfect storm shelter. We run. By God's grace, we hear the siren and we run to him. In other words, we repent We run to God. We run to Jesus Christ. And as Jesus shelters us, he himself is then torn to pieces because he bears the full judgment for our sin upon his own shoulders there on the cross. And we, we are free. We are spared. God's judgment has passed over us. And those words that Jesus himself says in John's gospel are true of us. He said in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Indeed, Lord, you, you are gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we thank you for causing us to run to run to you, to run to salvation in your Son. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us great joy even while we repent in knowing that you are loving and merciful. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.